Well, uh, last year we started a John, Gospel of John series, and the idea being that each year we would begin the year in the Gospels, um, because it's just a good place to it's a good place to go at the start of the year. Um, so we're back in John. So we went slowly up to John three sixteen. I think it ended on John three sixteen on Good Friday, and um, it was a good way to do Good Friday. And so we're we're going on from. Um, starting at verse 22. We must have gone up to verse 21. So, here we are. Now, our Bible reading this morning, it uh, occurs very early in Jesus' in Jesus' ministry. In fact, there's a time stamp put on, put on this um, passage, which um, tells us that it's actually, this, this event actually occurs earlier than any of the um, stories in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Up, up, sorry, past Jesus' baptism. Because it tells us that this is before John the Baptist is thrown in prison. And so this is a very early incident in Jesus' life. And uh, Jesus had just been um, talking to Nicodemus, the important Pharisee, who'd snuck to him at night, who'd kind of got a bit curious about Jesus and thought, I want to find out more about him and talk to him up close and personal. And, and Jesus gave Nicodemus some of these words that were the most profound one-on-one words about how to be born again and about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And then not long after that, Jesus and his disciples go out into the countryside where there, there was kind of an area with lots of water and um, he start, they started doing the ministry of baptism. And at the same time, his cousin, John the Baptist, uh, was doing the same thing with his disciples in a pretty similar area on the other side of the water. Um, they were baptising people. So everyone's getting baptised in all different... John the Baptist-style baptism and then Jesus-style baptism. Now, some of John's disciples show concern about what's going on here. About the, they have discussion with a certain Jewish person about ceremonial washing because what John the Baptist is doing and his disciples are doing looks like ceremonial washing, which is a traditional thing that the, the Jews have done for thousands of years as a way to kind of experience some kind of a fi- fi- cleansing and forgiveness of sin. And what Jesus was doing with his disciples looked very similar as well. But maybe the questions were like, is it the same? Is it different? More importantly, John's disciples were worried because the crowds were going to Jesus. And what was once a big, thriving ministry of John the Baptist and his disciples was looking a little bit like it was under threat because of Jesus and his disciples. So they, they go, the disciples of John the Baptist go to him and say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone's going to him. So even before, like think about this, even before we enter into the, the kind of full swing of Jesus' ministry, even before really the Matthew, Mark and Luke get into telling us about Jesus' ministry, he's already famous. He's already, he's already growing in fame. The crowds are coming. He is, you know, Elvis. You know, I mean, he's just got the people surrounding him. They're flocking to him. They're telling each other in the village, you've got to check this guy out, Jesus. What he does is amazing. His baptism, it changed your life. His disciples, what they do, it changed my life. There's something different about what he's doing, different to John the Baptist even. 
And it's worth mentioning as a side point that at the very start of chapter 4, a few verses later, or, you know, 15, 20 verses later, John makes this comment, the Gospel writer, that actually Jesus himself personally wasn't doing the baptism, but it was his disciples doing it, which I just think it's worth noticing that. Like, even though Jesus is growing in fame, he's actually standing back. It's not about him. It's not, he's not the centre of the ministry. The disciples are doing it for him. It's a ministry he delegates. And it's not that he isn't doing what John the Baptist said he would do, which is to be able to provide a new kind of baptism in the Holy Spirit. He's doing that, but he's doing it through his disciples. So we shouldn't think that Jesus is some kind of fame-hungry preacher, you know, that just loves the crowds and, and wants everyone to go to him. At the start of chapter 4, it actually says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptising more disciples than John. And so what did he do? He, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So he didn't even want his reputation to grow that quickly. He didn't, he didn't really want to become famous for his ministry. We see this in the other Gospels, don't we, that um, when he, he heals someone, he says, don't... Most of the time he says, please don't tell anyone that I just did this. Um, And it's not that he's keeping it a total secret who he really is. He reveals to who he wants to reveal to his true nature as the son of God. But he does it in his own timing. He doesn't want to get a reputation as the Messiah. And there's a good reason for that. And that is because he knows that everybody's hanging out for it. They're waiting the, 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 the Israelites are keen. They're Jews, they want a Messiah because they want a political leader to take over the Roman Empire. And he knows that if he gets a reputation as being the Messiah, straight away the Roman um, soldiers are going to come knocking on his door and arrest him and throw him in jail or execute him, which is actually what happened. But Jesus wanted to control the timing of all of that. Anyway, John the Baptist responded to this observation of his disciples by saying, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. Which is a pretty broad statement to make. What's he talking about? Is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about people in general? What does this have to do with Jesus' ministry of baptism? Well, John's point is that, John the Baptist's point is that all people can only receive what God gives them. Jesus is only doing what he's doing because God has given him that ability. And it's at this point that we start to realise that this whole passage is actually not about baptism, but it's about Jesus and who he is. John the Baptist had always made it clear that he was not the Messiah, but actually his job was to pave the way for the Messiah, to point to the Messiah. He says to them in verse 29, Think of me as the best man. I'm not the groom. I just get to stand next to the groom, make a few speeches, carry the ring, make sure his suit's looking good, but I'm not the centre of attention. Uh, So he says this, So you have to understand that as the best man, I am actually excited to see that the groom has arrived. I'm full of joy that the time has arrived. Now, I understand the point that John's 
the Baptist is making. Because the one time I've been a best man was for Nick, who's probably upstairs now, and Christine, or Nick's best man. Um, and I can remember the lead up to the wedding is really exciting as the best man. You, you're um, going to try on suits and you t- you'd organise the Bucks party and, you know, we went to the Red Triangle, played some pool and, you know, went to the uh, Melbourne Supper Club and had expensive whiskey and did all those things you do in Bucks parties. And then you get to the wedding day and it's like you're in the, the backstage dressing room and you, you're there, you're up close to the whole, the action. But then when the wedding happens, you're excited, but you're not the main person as the best man. And if you suddenly try and make yourself the main person, you'll put a lot of people offside. <laughs> so, so, so the wedding happens and the minister's there and Christine walks down the aisle and you're all excited and happy for them. And you go, and, you, and what I, I remember thinking to myself, phew, I've done my job, now I can just sort of relax now. Except I did have to do the speech as well in the reception. So... So you get the point, though. Um, you can have a lot of joy as not being the centre of attention and not the main person. And you would have thought of all people, John the Baptist's disciples, they would have got this. They've been there with John the Baptist and seen John the Baptist baptise Jesus and heard John the Baptist talk about the Messiah that was to come and that person was Jesus. But it seems they didn't get it. Perhaps they were sad to see their rabbi lose his fame. John the Baptist had already preached that one day the Messiah would come who would offer a baptism that was far superior to the one that he could offer. A Messiah whose ministry would change lives in a way that Judaism could not. And this has been the message of the Gospel of John so far. Let me remind you, in the first half of John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, Jesus provides the necessary wine, because the wine's right now, by converting the water that's in the ceremonial washing jars, the big ceremonial washing jars, he converts it into the choicest wine for the wedding. And all the guests are like, this is amazing. We thought the wine had run out. And by doing that, Jesus is showing that he is the far superior wine. In other words, he can provide the goodness and the nourishment and the joy that um, any other kind of wine, inverted commas, that Judaism has brought before He can do it better. He can fulfil what Judaism had been trying to achieve. Also, he can provide a kind of new kind of cleansing that the ceremonial jars were trying to provide. He can do that in a more superior way. And then if you go into the second half of John chapter 2, there he is at the temple getting angry because he's seeing all the injustice and the way people are being ripped off with their money and especially the poor being marginalised. And what does Jesus show there when he gets angry and throws the tables and chairs? He's showing that really he's going to be the new temple. He's going to be the one who provides the direct access to God and does all the things that the temple is, is doing in, in, in a kind of a shadow kind of way. Jesus does it, can do it more completely. Then at the first half of John chapter 3, when he's meeting with Nicodemus, Jesus reveals that he fulfills all the prophecies that have been in the Jewish scriptures about water and spirit. Next Sunday, Beck's going to preach on um, the Samaritan woman at the well. And there you're going to see that Jesus again shows that he's far superior than anything um, that, uh, that has been provided in Judaism because he's going to provide a more inclusive ministry that includes people beyond Israel, Israel to people of other cultures. So John the Baptist understood, he understood all, about, all of this about his cousin Jesus, that what he was doing was far superior than anything he could do. 
So this is why he can comfortably and confidently say in verse 30, he must become greater, I must become less. This is God's will for Jesus. John the Baptist, it's not, he's not conceding victory to some kind of superstar rabbi opponent going, yeah, he's just a much better preacher than me. It's not, it's not like that. It's like, this is what God's will. I mean, this is what he's, I'm here. I, John the Baptist knows I've been given this ministry to do this task, to point to Jesus. Now Jesus is here. He knows there's a big difference between him and, and John the Baptist and Jesus. Verse 31 explains that while they are both human, Jesus is also divine. John the Baptist must become less because he can only speak as one from the earth. Jesus must become greater because he can speak as one from heaven. John could only call people to repentance and to baptism in water, but Jesus could offer people the new birth. And John's point is that Jesus is sent by God. He speaks the word of God. Jesus completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does. So that to believe Jesus is actually to believe in God. To not believe in Jesus is to call God a liar, he says, verse 32 and 33. In fact, Jesus is actually speaking with the full power of the Holy Spirit. See, all the prophets that had come before, from Abraham all the way to John the Baptist being the last of these prophets, God God gave them a measure of his spirit according to what their ministry was. He poured out his Holy Spirit on them to empower them to do their job. But not Jesus. With Jesus, God pours out infinitely the Holy Spirit. Jesus has no limited amount of Holy Spirit. It's, 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 it's unlimited, the amount of spirit he has. Um, so he, he works in a power that no one else works in. So the passage says that the Father placed everything in the Son's hands. So you should be able to see then why it is the case that whoever believes in the Son, this is what this passage is driving to, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is one of the great themes of the Gospel of John. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, and God's wrath will be on them. If you want to see life, and believe in the Son. And to see life means to be made fully spiritually alive now. And also it's about our eternal life. It means being permanently joined to Jesus now. It means having forgiveness of your sins. It means receiving the Holy Spirit. It means growing in godly character and power. That's what it means to see life in the now. It's a now and a later thing. Jesus the Messiah has come, John the Baptist is saying. If you believe in him, then you can enjoy that eternal life now. An eternal life that will be permanent when Jesus returns. That will be perfected when you rise in your new resurrection body at the end of time. But if you don't believe in him, then you stand under God's wrath. Under the looming wrath of God. That will be finalised as well when Jesus returns at the final judgment. This is one of the, the, the first really strong, clear explanations of the gospel. 
I mean, it's been explained lots of times already in the first three chapters of John, but this is a concise, in-your-face kind of explanation. The opposite of seeing life is seeing death. Don't think of, of God's wrath as some kind of impersonal nuclear bomb sent from North Korea. You know, it's not like, and then the, uh-uh, you know, and the, nobody cares. You know, God's wrath is the personal response of a holy God who's actually come to earth to his own world and then found people actually not interested in him. A world where God has found people who just reject him. So here's the discipleship point that we're getting at, I'm getting out of this passage. If you want to be alive in God, if you want to know what it is to be alive in God, then you need to make Jesus the star of your show. The problem you have in your faith now is that you want to be the bride or the bridegroom. Uh, you don't... You want Jesus actually to be your best man. You don't want him to be the groom. And when push comes to shove, you don't actually want Jesus to be the star of the show, which is your life. You can't actually say, he must become greater, I must become less. Rather, you say, he's obviously pretty good, but I need to be better. And this is essentially what idolatry is. Idolatry is loving something more than God. It's loving yourself more than God. It's loving money more than God. It's loving your possessions more than God. It's loving your health more than God. It's loving your hobbies, your holidays, your family. Your... It's, it's loving anything more than you love God. And this is why I think Western people are struggling at the moment with Christian faith more than ever. If we look at the last sort of 1,000 years, in the last 100 years, there's been a real decline of Christianity in the West. And I, I don't think it's necessarily a theological problem. It's really more about idolatry. Being a disciple of Jesus is actually costly. And it seems so countercultural to put something um, or someone else ahead of you. Um, my favourite book of 2017 was uh, David Brooks's Road to Character. I think it might have come out in 2016. But anyway, I looked at it in 2017. And in the Road to Character, so he's a New York Times writer, columnist, and he argues that in post-World War II Western culture, there was a shift towards, a radical shift towards individualism, right? Um, so he's, he sort of shows how society loses track or loses its connection to morality and to ideas like finding joy in building character. Uh, individualism tips the society in a new direction, in a, in a way that's really pushing us away from God, in fact. We're encouraged to follow, for example, our desires wherever they may lead us. And as we chase our desires, we lose sight of deeper principles of virtue and character. For example, the belief that you can accomplish anything you set your mind on, on means that every situation is reduced to a simply, simplistic equation of loss and opportunity, cost and opportunity. And so this means in contemporary society that we no longer invest in things out of joy or out of love or loyalty, 
but we invest in things to climb the social ladder. Our lives revolve around how we achieve our goals and no longer why we're achieving our goals. So even um, Brooks argues the, that the way we raise children has changed, that what, you know, the connection between a parent and a child is supposed to be one of love. And it is. We're, not, you know, we're talking in stark contrast here with the goal of fostering a profound relationship between parent and child. But now raising children for many people is more about... Um, it's another tool for self-promotion with report cards and achievements of the children being another badge of honour for the parent. Parents are not invested in their children becoming well-rounded so much, balanced people, but instead push them to, to learn skills that look good on a resume. So children are constantly praised. They're told how great they are. Oh, you're so good. Well done. Well done. You're so great. You know, how special you are. You put in a kind of an education world that is designed to push them to success. And the question, I guess, that we should ask ourselves is how are children ever going to have a chance of being able to say, he must become greater and I must become less in this kind of culture? At the University of California, which is where Mia um, from our congregation has just gone, Mia and Tom have gone, Mia's gone to study there. For decades, they've been invest, uh, surveying first-year students, freshmen, as they call them, um, with several questions. One of the questions is, are you seeking a meaningful philosophy of life in your time at uni? Now, back in 77, when I was one years old, 80% uh, of people said, yes, that's what I'm trying to achieve now. But today, less than 50% are looking for a meaningful philosophy of life. The students were also polled with this question of how important gaining personal wealth is to your study. And back in 1966, 10 years before my birth, 42% said this was the case. By 1990, this had raised to 74%. The Western culture is becoming more and more individualistic. But the Christian gospel runs contrary to this modern individualistic message. What we've got to learn is that character forms in people who understand, first of all, that we are flawed people, that we are limited, that we are broken, that we are sinful. And John the Baptist understood this. He says in verse 31, the one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. In other words, he's saying, I'm just... I'm just a, a human being, you know, from earth, with all my limitations. I do not compare to the glory that is my Lord Jesus Christ, who is, yes, a human being, and is also from heaven, the Son of God, the one who comes from heaven and who is above all, to use the words of the passage. In other words, I'm only the best man in the wedding. He is the groom. I just carry the ring and do the speech. He has to lay down his life for the bride. So being honest about your flaws is a good thing. It helps you overcome your self-centeredness. It helps prevent you from fooling yourself that you are the star of your show. That you're more important than everyone else. That you're more important than Jesus. Being honest about your flaws, about your sin, about your limitedness helps you embrace deeper social values as well. Like love and connection to others. 
Most importantly, being honest about your sin and your limitation forces you to step back into a supporting role in the drama of your life and allow Jesus to be the star of the show. It compels you to turn to the one, Jesus Christ, who can truly forgive your sins. It causes you to be honest Sorry, being honest about your sin and limitation causes you to turn to the only one who can give you the ability to grow in humility and the only one who can give you the gracious gift of new life in God. Now, there are many applications we could make of how you can be like John the Baptist and have life in God by making Jesus the star of the show. And here's just one. And, and you're going to think this is coming out of left field, but you'll see how it fits. And that is to keep a gratitude diary. Now, psychologists, they talk about this phenomenon, which I see everywhere, even in myself, which is they call um, the headwind-tailwind asymmetry. So remember a time when you were cycling along and it's windy and the wind is actually in your face and it's not pleasant and you're thinking, I would get where I'm going much quicker if I did not have a headwind. Um, you're hanging for that headwind to change and you're paddling, you're paddling and the wind is just blowing and blowing and blowing in your face and you're just like, what? And then, and then you turn a corner and then you have a tailwind. Ah, <sighs> got a tailwind. And for about a minute, you're feeling great. But then you forget about it. It only takes a, a minute to forget that you've got a backwind, a tailwind. You have to pay attention. When you've got a headwind, you have to pay attention to that because you've got to fight against it. But you don't have to pay attention to the tailwind. So you spend all your time focusing on the wind holding you back and you take for granted all the wind that pushes you forward. And psychologists say this is true for life in general. We focus on the circumstances in our life which we perceive are holding us back. We focus on the people who are getting in our way. Like John the Baptist's disciples saying, Oh, the crowds are going to Jesus. Suddenly Jesus and his disciples have become like the, the headwinds. They've just been able to stand alongside the last of God's great prophets and be on his team, and that's their tailwind, and all they can think about is Jesus and his disciples on the other side of the Jordan. We take for granted all the things that God gives us, all the things we've received. So keep a gratitude diary. Write down all the things that you're grateful for, all the people you're grateful for. And sometimes it requires a bit of discipline because, you know, half the time we don't even realise what we've got until it's gone. And you can show other people gratitude by writing a letter to them and handing it to them or texting is a bit impersonal, you know, a full-on handwritten letter that'll really change you. And doing this will help you be humble. It will help you to remember that Jesus is the star of your show. It will remind you of the backwinds in your life. Ungrateful people are always complaining and being introspective and self-absorbed. But grateful people are always joyful and being other person-centred and are more likely to be God-focused. John the Baptist was grateful. Listen to his words in verse 29. The joy is his and this joy is now complete. Why? Because he's been able to have a part in God's work in the world. He has fulfilled his God-given purpose in life. 
He's been able to point other people to Jesus. But think about Jesus to finish. He was the one who, while he had fame in the region, while he had crowds flocking to him, while he had the unlimited power of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives, while he was the king of kings, yet he was the perfect embodiment of humility. Let me just read you these words from Philippians 2 to close. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used in his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.